0: If you have your Bibles this morning, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to the book of Ezra, chapter 1. If you have no idea where that is, turn to Psalms and then go four books back and you will find yourself in Ezra. So Ezra, chapter 1. This morning we begin a new 15-week series that will take us through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in the earliest copies of the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah was one book, so we have two books, they were one book, and the story of, of Ezra and Nehemiah plays out against the backdrop of ruins. There's a ruined city, the city of Jerusalem with fallen walls. There's a ruined house of worship, a, wor- a house of worship that had been completely desecrated and then destroyed. There's ruined homes, and even more than that, a ruined relationship with God for his people. So that relationship seemed to be gone. And Ezra and Nehemiah, as we know, or maybe as many of you know, aren't the most popular or well-known men in the Bible. I read this week that of the top grossing movies of all time, six of the top 10 are superhero movies. And the point is everyone loves a good superhero story. They love when the The good guy beats the bad guy and saves the world, and we can walk out with hope. Therefore, when we come to the Bible, we often find ourselves looking for the hero in every story. So will the hero be Ezra? Will the hero be be Nehemiah? Where will the hero come? And in some ways, like a superhero, of course, God stands over his people. He watches them in order to, of course care for them and save them, but superheroes, even the best superheroes in the movies, all have weaknesses, yet God has none. He has zero weaknesses at all, and the picture is this. God is not just the hero of this book or Nehemiah. He's the hero of every book. He's the hero of the Bible. It is his doing, and just follow with me here. Ezra and Nehemiah are are not connected to any memorable event in scripture that kind of comes to us, like the flood, or like the exodus, or the walls of Jericho falling down, or fire falling from, from heaven. In fact, there are no signs and wonders done in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra is basically a Bible nerd who gets other people to take the Bible seriously, and Nehemiah is a project manager who comes to Jerusalem in order to rebuild walls that had been destroyed. I mean, these are necessary books, don't get me wrong, but they don't seem as important. Many times to us as the stories of Moses or Joshua or, or David or Elijah. But what these books do, Ezra and Nehemiah, they show us that God not only keeps his people, he keeps his word. God keeps his people and he keeps his Word. And Ezra and Nehemiah are basically the last glimpse of Old Testament history that we have. The book of Ezra is often called the second exodus, meaning the first exodus, of course, is the first exodus. In the book of Exodus, it took place a thousand years before this exodus. But we have a picture now of the people of Israel leaving Babylon, leaving a place that's now taken over by Persia and they're coming home. Let me give you quickly a, a background, a little background, a timeline of events in the Old Testament leading us to where we are today. If you can't read that, I, I will read it for you. So but just want to put that up there. So number one, Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant-making, covenant-remembering, covenant-keeping God made a covenant with Abraham that involved not only a nation, a multitude of people, but also a land that he would give them. Number two, on that timeline, Abraham's family grew to become a great nation while being enslaved in Egypt. So they're enslaved in Egypt and they grow. Number three, God then raised up Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt to lead them into the land that God had given them, the promised land. During the midst of that journey, God also gave Israel the law. It was what set them apart as a nation and what made them, of course, God's People. God's saying, this is how you're going to live as my people. Number four, after they initially conquered and settled in the promised land, they eventually set up a kingdom, first ruled by King Saul, then King David, finally ruled by King Solomon. Number five, after Solomon's death, after Solomon had sinned against God, the kingdom of Israel is divided, It's split in two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, you have the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. And both of these kingdoms abandon their commitment to God, their covenant to God. They become more and more wicked. Israel, of course, reaches the bottom of their wickedness first. So therefore, number six, in 722 BC, as an act of judgment by God, Israel was defeated by the nation of Assyria. This served as a wake-up call for a time for the southern kingdom, Judah. They woke up, but eventually they forgot the Lord again and gave themselves to idolatry, gave themselves to disobedience. And so finally in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah was completely conquered by the Babylonian Empire. The capital city, Jerusalem, along with the temple, completely destroyed. Their identity as a people, gone. And so all this history is important, but it wasn't the end of the story. We come to number seven, where God's story of salvation continues through Ezra and Nehemiah. Now around 70 years after their exile began, God is now orchestrating the events of allowing his people to return to Jerusalem, even using a pagan godless king in order to do it. So these two books that we're going to be in for 15 weeks basically cover three waves back to Jerusalem of returning exiles, basically from 538 B.C. to 433 B.C., so around 100 years of history is what we're going to be covering. But they tell one story, so one story of restoration of God's people by God's word. The restoration, of course, first required the rebuilding of God's temple, There was a man named Zerubbabel, we're going to read about him, that, that comes and he helps the people rebuild the temple. The second wave comes about a half century later when Ezra in Ezra 7 finally enters his own story. So we don't see Ezra until Ezra 7, but he comes not to rebuild the temple. He comes as a Bible nerd to point people back to God, to point people to rebuild the people. In essence. And then 13 years after Ezra comes, Nehemiah shows up to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that had been left in ruins. As I said before, both of these books show us that God keeps his people and he keeps his word. Amen. And so it's kind of you look at this, and if you've never been ripped from your home and held in a foreign land for decades, it's hard to feel the weight of what the people of Israel must have felt. But the reality is this. God reached into the heart of a pagan king. God turned the key, and he let his people, freed his people yet again. So feel the truth. If you don't feel anything else today, feel this. We serve the same God. We serve the same God who still stirs the hearts of people. So let's dive in this morning and begin our study If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. In our bulletins, you see Ezra 1 through 4. I'm going to throw a curve. We're only going to cover the first two verses today, and we'll take on the rest of the chapter next week. That's all I could fit in in the time that we have. So beginning at verse 1 through verse 2, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who restores. You're a God who leads your people out in order to bring them in. And Lord, you're a God who, through your own word, you said that if Israel turned against you, that you would lead them out of their promised land, but yet you also promised to bring them back. And that is what we're going to see this morning, the beginning of that, and the beginning of how your people will be rebuilt as a people, all pointing to the coming of your Son. Lord, lead us in this time. Restore us as your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. So if you were to today, this afternoon, drive through Atlanta, I don't know why you want to do that, but if you were to drive through Atlanta, Georgia, it's nearly impossible to remember the worst days in this city's history. Today, you have more than 5 million people who live in the metro Atlanta area, Fighting gridlock as they drive anywhere among all the gleaming skyscrapers, the amazing sports stadiums that they have, the college campuses, the state's gold dome Capitol building. But it's nearly impossible to picture the aftermath of the Civil War when the city smoldered after a relentless 36 day shelling from Sherman's. Union troops so not a building stood untouched by the battle and those who were left behind the people that were left behind they were too poor or too wounded to leave so the shelling finally stopped August 9th 1864 and a handful of people basically sorted through all the burned out embers wondering how in the world they might possibly rebuild the city. They weren't thinking about what the city could look like a century later, how Atlanta has become one of the largest cities in America, one of the best known cities in America. But in that day, when all of this happened, all they cared about is finding shelter, finding food, making it to tomorrow. That's all they cared about in that moment, yet Atlanta would rise from the ashes, bigger and more fantastic than they could ever have imagined 14 decades before. In a much greater way, in a much, much greater way, Jerusalem would rise from the ashes. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah testify of God's grace of renewal. They tell a story that God restores his people. How God's people started over following their own failure and being led into exile. And here's what we know. I don't know if you know this, but starting over isn't always easy. Beginning again takes courage. Beginning again takes renewed energy. Or if you think about failure in our background, failure can sometimes hamstring any hope that we have. It can cloud our vision. It can undermine optimism. Failure in our past can make us where we don't want to move forward. And even worst of all, failure generates fear in our lives. Fear of failing again so that we don't move forward. These books that we are about to enter into convey the story of Israel's journey from failure to fulfillment. And they're not the ones bringing the fulfillment God is. But what you have from this picture is people coming back to Jerusalem, setting the stage for God to do what he would do around a little over 400, four and a half centuries later and sending his son a picture of his fulfillment, what he would do. So this morning, I want us to, in a sense, see where it all begins, where this whole picture begins. And three truths I'm going to lay before you in the time that we have together. The first is this. Know this. Feel this. God keeps his word. God keeps his word. Know that. Feel that. Believe that. In the very first verse, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah so that it might be fulfilled. J. Vernon McGee, a Bible scholar, regarded the phrase the word of the Lord as the theme of the book of Ezra. It appears ten times in this book. And here's the point. God always keeps his promises. He always does. That's a, a tremendous and encouraging thought for us. However, understand this. Not all of God's promises are promises of blessings. Some of God's promises are promises, hear this, of discipline. Now, we don't like to hear that, but God's goal of disciplining his people, whether it be the Israelites then or us now, isn't to destroy them or us. It's to restore them or to restore us. In fact, God promises to restore those who turn back to him. But think about the words we just read so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. I want to focus on Jeremiah, but I want to focus on four scriptures that happened before this that show that God keeps his word. I'm going to put them on the screen. The first is Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, it says this. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite. And there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and languishing souls. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. So follow with me, before the people of Israel ever entered into the promised land, God warned them through Moses of what would happen if they chose to disobey him. Part of God's promise is that if you, Israel, if you disobey me, I will remove you from the land that I have graciously given you and I will scatter you throughout other lands. God promised that. Now, he promised to bless them for obedience, but he promised this would come through disobedience. Now, the next group of scriptures is Jeremiah 25. So it says from the mouth of Jeremiah, so Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 13 say, The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it. So in chapter 25 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says that he had faithfully called the people of Israel to return to God for 23 years, yet because they would not listen to any of the prophets that God had sent, Jeremiah says you will now serve the king of Babylon in Babylon for 70 years. So before it ever happened, Jeremiah is saying, here's what's coming. 70 years of exile for you, for your disobedience. Now the next group of scriptures, Jeremiah 29, very famous verses for us. But listen to what it says. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, so again we hear this, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And I will gather you from all the nations and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is writing to those who had already been taken to Babylon. Again, reminding them that after 70 years, God would bring them back, would prosper them, bring them back to their land, back to Jerusalem. And let me call your attention quickly to verse 11. Jeremiah 29, 11 contains a precious promise held by Christians all over the world. The problem is, it's one of the most misapplied, misinterpreted verses in all of Scripture. In this verse, Jeremiah affirms that God is in control and that God has good in store for his people, namely Judah, to bring them out of Babylon back to Jerusalem. I mean, these are comforting words to be sure, but some have taken these words to apply to themselves in a unique and unqualified way, mainly that God has promised that he will prosper us, that no evil or harm will ever fall upon us, and we will have a great future and a great hope. Listen, it has been said that the three most important factors when it comes to real estate is location, location, location. Well, the three most important facts when it comes to interpreting any verse in the Bible is context, context, context. When the texts are isolated, we can make them mean whatever we want them to mean. But when we read them in context, what God is saying here becomes clear. So anytime we come, we said it on Wednesday night, anytime we come to a promise from God in Scripture, we need to ask ourselves the question, is every promise given by God in Scripture, can we claim it as ours? And the answer is no. No. God gave specific promises to specific people and specific, whether it be individuals or nations as a whole, promises that he gave that were only for them. Now, there's also universal promises all throughout the word of God that we can claim that are ours. Now, when we come to promises as well, we need to ask ourselves, are are these unconditional promises of God saying, I will do this no matter what, or these conditional promises, such as 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, I will forgive you. But what do you have to do first? You have to confess your sins in order to receive God's forgiveness. So when we think about Jeremiah 2911 here's what God is saying to Judah individually who they're in exile. they are serving as slaves in Babylon and God makes a promise to them. I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you a future, I'm going to give you a hope. Now in another stance, let me back up and say this, as a child of God can we say throughout the word of God that God has plans for us? Yes. Psalm 39 tells us that God has written plans for our lives, so many plans and purposes for us. Matthew 28, 18-20, God has plans for us, that we go in the nations, make disciples of all nations. God has plans for us. Does God truly want to give us a future and a hope? Absolutely. We have a future and a hope as God's people. But here's the deal. If you're looking for prosperity to come now, God never promised that. Let me tell you who promised that. Satan. Satan promised Eve her best life now. God promised our best life to come. And if we confuse that, we will live very frustrated lives. Oh, to God that we would understand the goodness of God and what he has promised us. And he keeps his word. Amen. One more. One more verse in Isaiah 44, 28 through 45. one, it says this, who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. Don't miss this. 200 years before Cyrus was ever born, was ever born, the prophet Isaiah gives a prophecy and mentions Cyrus by name. And what Cyrus would do to bring his people, God's people, back from captivity. Therefore, when God makes a promise, whether a promise to bless, to help, to strengthen, or even to discipline, or to judge, he always keeps his word. He keeps his word amidst a shifting and changing world with all kinds of unknowns in our path. God Keeps his word. He keeps his word, which leads us to number two. Not only does God keep His word, number two, God rules His world. God rules His world. If you sit back and you watch a a river flow, you will notice every drop of water is carried along the bends, the twists of the river, the drops and the leveling of the landscape. All direct the river to its intended end. Now, if a farmer says, well, I need irrigation on my field, a farmer can choose to channel that river away from its intended end to help himself for a time. And here's the deal. In a much greater way, God does not have to course, course or force the hearts of anyone to do what he wants by his power, by his providence, With his gracious hand, the Lord is able to move, the Lord is able to guide, the Lord is able to accomplish his purpose. Think about this. He did it with Pharaoh in Egypt, and he's doing it again here with Cyrus. Like the banks of a river being directed, the Lord is able to move history towards its intended end. I think about Proverbs 21.1. It says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wills. The king's heart is in. Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago? Do we really believe that God has control every every single leader of this world? Jesus did. Remember that? When Jesus told Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you. We have to understand that, that picture of God. Every leader is in his hand. And the sovereign God is not against moving people's heart to accomplish what he intends to be done. So after the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians, God moved Cyrus to let God's people go home. We read about it in verse 1. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. He's stirring up his spirit so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom. But think about this. Why would Cyrus, a pagan king, issue a decree for the Jews to return and to rebuild the temple. Well in 1879 there was an object by the name of Cyrus cylinder that was discovered and it records words from the King from, from King Cyrus what he gave words uh, 2500 years ago and in this cylinder it's revealed that Cyrus had a policy that, he would restore all the people that they had captured back to their native lands back to their religions all the while asking them to pray to their gods for blessings on him so on a human level you have a pagan king a polytheistic king following his program of religious tolerance superstitiously asking people to pray for him for blessing upon blessing upon blessing for well-beings all the while thinking that he's in control but as our text clearly shows us, behind all of that is a sovereign God who is stirring the heart of a king. And this story has great implications for us today. In a world that seems out of control, you ever looked at our world and said, this world is out of control? you ever done that every day? In a world that seems out of control, our God is in control. Our world, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, is headed towards its intended purpose. God is in control. And if the Lord can fulfill his purpose by changing the heart of a pagan king, how much more is the Lord able to direct and lead and even change our very paths? Oh, he can, and oh, he is. There's something else that confronts us, when we come to Ezra, and I think we need to address this before we move on. We, really throughout the whole Bible it confronts us. And it's, it's mind-blowing. And I asked you this morning to put this in your theological pipe and smoke it. Or if, that, um, if you don't like that terminology, get out your theological bubble gum and chew on it for a while. But you need to add this to your theology. And that is this. God is willing and able to use evil to accomplish good. Let me say it again. God is willing and able to use evil to accomplish good. If you go, no, that's not right, then what happened at the cross? What happened at the cross? The most wicked form of evil ever led to our eternal good. So you might not get that in your minds at first, but if we're not careful, here's what we do. If we're not careful, we have this idea that there is a dueling picture in the heavens. You have a good God and an evil God. The evil God is Satan. The good God is is our God. Every evil thing is attributed to Satan. Every good thing is attributed to God. The problem is, that's not what the Bible says. Satan is not a God. He's a created being. Yes, he has power, but he has limited power. He can do nothing without asking God's permission. Read the book of Job. So the point is, listen, Scripture shows us that God is able to raise up even evil, wicked kings in order to accomplish his purposes. God works in the hearts of evil people to accomplish unthinkable things. Or put it this way, God's toolbox. So think about God having a toolbox. The tools that God uses to accomplish his purposes includes, hear this, everything. Everything. God can use everything and anything to accomplish his purposes. And here's the good news, even us, even us. God is unshakably sovereign, and he can use whomever he wills to do whatever he wills, whenever he wills, all for his glory. All for his glory. God rules his world. Things aren't out of control. Things are in line with what God's purpose is for this world. If you don't like the end, let me tell you, come to Jesus, and you're going to like how it's going to end. Because it's going to end really, really good for us. Really good for us. Which leads us lastly. So not only not only do we see these beautiful pictures of God working by keeping his word. By ruling over his world. Number three, God demands our worship. God demands our worship. Now worship captivates us like few other things. And worship is something, is a common trait of every single person in this world. You know that every single person in this world is a worshiper. You, my friend, are a worshiper. Every single person outside these doors are, they're they're a worshiper. They've been created by God to worship. The problem is, when they forsake God, they will always find something else to worship. Whatever we adore the most, love the most, think about the most, is our object of worship. It's what we are worshiping. Unfortunately, very few people Think deeply about their worship and even less deeply about the one Yahweh, the Lord, who the Bible says is worthy of our worship. He's the only one worthy. Our worship, if we're not careful, tends to be reactive instead of proactive. And what I mean by that, follow with me here, when our week is amazing and great and we get everything we want, then God's worthy of our worship. And when things don't go our way and God doesn't answer prayers the way we think we should, then God, what are you doing? Meaning that you really don't want God, you want want yourself to be God, and you want God to do what you want him to do. And I know you guys, I don't want any of us in this room to be God. It would be bad for all of us. I mean, it would be bad for all of us. I've seen how some of you respond in traffic. I mean, I don't want you ruling over the world in which we live. So the the beautiful thing is we have a a God who is worthy of our worship. Here's the deal. It's not, and this is my pet peeve, And I'm going to try not to get upset. I get so sick of Christians who say, God answered my prayer. Oh, praise God. He's worthy of praise. You know what? I prayed for my father when he was in a hospital bed, and God allowed him to go be with him. And I actually had somebody from our church say, well, maybe if you would have prayed harder, God would have answered your request. And I was like, are you absolutely kidding me? Are you kidding me? Because here's the deal. My father right now is in the best place he could ever be in the best hands he could ever be don't you dare say if god answered or gives you what you want praise be to god but if he doesn't then he's not worthy of praise the god who gives the god who takes away blessed be his name blessed be his name both now and forever now let me come back from my theological high horse and get back on our our topic this morning but when i say that god demands worship the context here is of God bringing his people back to their land that he had graciously given them, commanding them to rebuild the temple, all the while trying to reestablish their worship of him. So in verse 2, King Cyrus said, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. So this book's focus is on the temple, reminding us that The Lord's eternal purpose was to dwell with his people. So from the very moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the rest of scripture tells us of a way being made for a holy God to dwell among an unholy people. God told Moses to have the people build a tabernacle so that he could dwell among them. The priesthood, the sacrificial system were God's merciful provision to allow a sinful people to approach him, a holy God. The Jerusalem temple that was built, the climactic picture of the Old Testament, showed the glorious, gracious God filling something that was made by the hands of of man and now you see the the command being given to rebuild this house to regather god's people and here's what god is after god is after the worship of his own but here's what it calls for us it calls us to recognize that the god who stirred people's hearts then. so next week we're going to look at the rest of chapter one and we're going to see that two times in this chapter we're told that God stirs hearts the God that stirs hearts then hear me stirs hearts now he stirs hearts now let me end with the words of James Hamilton Jr. And he says this look at the influence the Lord has are there members of your family who are not interested in building the church really not interested in the Lord at all Ask the Lord to stir their hearts. Do you have friends or neighbors or people in your life that you would love to see moved to join the cause of covering the stage God built with his glory? Do you see the rulers of the world and fear the detrimental effect they could have on the gospel? Seek the Lord to stir their hearts. He can do this great work. Ask and it will be given. Are there family members in your life that aren't Christians or aren't serving the Lord? Ask the Lord continually to stir their hearts. Are there neighbors, co-workers? Ask the Lord to stir their hearts. Our leaders, oh God, please stir their hearts. Stir their hearts. But here's where I want to end today. I want to end today by asking you by begging you, maybe daring you to ask this. Amid amid asking God to stir their hearts, let's begin today this way. God, stir my heart. Stir my heart. Stir my heart with the things that you would have me to do. Stir my heart with the purposes that you have for me. Stir my heart with the people that you would have me to speak and tell the gospel. Stir my heart. Stir my heart. It's one thing to say, God, stir their heart. God, shake things up there. But I often have heard it said that if we want revival, we start by drawing a circle around ourselves and saying, God, start right here. Start right here, God. May God start right here, right in all of our lives. God, stir us. I'm going to ask Brother Franklin, musicians, to come forward. I'm going to ask you to stand as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. And let's pray together. Fathers, we begin this new study today of restoration, renovation of your people. And we're going to see your hand in every step of this. Father, we want to begin today right now with saying, Father, stir what needs to be stirred. Stir what needs to be stirred including our own lives, including the life of this, your church. God, stir us for the sake of the purpose you have for us. Lord, we pray that if any in this room today or will be that don't know you, stir their hearts now to show them their need for you. They would call upon your name and be saved. For others of us, stir us with the words of Jesus in John 15 that apart from you, we can do nothing. Stir our hearts, O oh God. Stir us. Stir us, we pray. Whatever that looks like in our lives, we surrender and submit ourselves to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have thine own way. Have thine own way.